Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. We pray that this message is a blessing. Friends, thanks so much for being here. What an absolute delight. I am... This afternoon, as I was, I, I finished earlier today in terms of what I wanted to share and get our imagination centered around, uh, but I was reminiscing on a quote, actually from a poem by T.S. Eliot, and I looked it up just before, because I think it kind of captures what tonight will feel like. He puts it like this, he says, uh, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Uh, we're going to look at things we know about this afternoon, this evening, and it might feel like we're covering territory we've already heard, but my hope is to wrap a bow in it in the end of our time and bring this sense of closure such that when we come to read Romans 8 at the very end of this next portion of minutes, we will feel the truth. We will know the truth. We will see the technicolor and the beauty of the story we were won by long ago. So why don't I pray, and we'll jump into uh, a lecture on the atonement, looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. Before I pray, let me just say, thanks for coming tonight. What a wonderful moment just to mark the start of the Easter season and to participate in the journey toward the cross alongside Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for yourself. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your Holy Spirit here. Father, we pray as we sit in your scriptures and flick through church history that we wouldn't just be entertained with ideas, Lord, but we would see you, glorious, magnificent, risen, beautiful, Savior King Jesus. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite pieces of artwork, not that I'm an art buff, but is uh, a piece from the second century in the catacombs of Rome called Alexamenos Graffitos. And it's the picture of a figure dangling on a cross with a donkey's head. The best tattoo you can ever get, in my humble opinion. And down beneath the cross is a figure kneeling, worshipping. And the Greek text just reads, Alexamenos worships his God. What they don't know is whether this is the artwork of Christians trying to capture the profundity of the message of the gospel or the graffiti of pagan Romans trying to insult Christians for the foolishness of what they worship. A man on a cross, a donkey, an ass. The cross is one of the most staggering symbols in human history. And it's at the heart of the Christian story. And I think in the modern era, we run the risk of forgetting just how strange that is. We sanitize it through art. We hide it clinically behind symbols. We wear it as jewelry. We tattoo it on our forearm. And we forget just how scandalous that is. There was a writer in the 1960s. I don't think they were a Christian. But they said if Jesus was crucified 20 years ago, Christians wouldn't be wearing crosses they'd be wearing electric chairs around their neck. Because he knew, historically speaking, that the cross was not jewelry, it wasn't art, it wasn't a clinical symbol. It was an execution device. Now the Romans, they didn't create crucifixion, they perfected it. 
We know that crucifixion was practice used by imperial forces right all the way up to the first century, and the Romans really refined how crucifixion worked and, and what it would do to victims. Uh, if you were crucified, it could take between four hours and four days for you to finally meet your death. And death would happen actually quite painfully. Uh, the Latin word that gives birth to the word uh, excruciating actually comes from crucio, which all the Harry Potter fans out there know exactly what I'm talking about. But it comes from the cross, crucifixion. Uh, the, the greatest English term we've got for pain comes from the historical reality of crucifixion under the might and power of Rome. What would happen is you'd be scourged with a whip and at the end of this whip would be shards of pottery and glass and iron and ore. It pulls sort of pieces of flesh out of your body. You'd be just bleeding extremely. And the next step was for you to take a 50 kilogram bar and strap it to your shoulders and ascend to the place of crucifixion. Now for Jesus, we know that was the Mount of Golgotha, but for any victim of Rome, it could have been any hill, any place. After that, you would, you'd find yourself at the place of your crucifixion. They'd fix the cross to your arms, and they'd do that by taking nine-plus-inch nails and hammering them straight through uh, your wrists. I should have given a trigger warning at this point. Hey, happy Wednesday. And then they'd, while you're lying down, put your right or left foot over your other foot and take the next nail and pin it straight through your ankles and the damage it would do to your nerves just sends shocks right through your body and then finally you would be erected up and you'd be hanging there. And what typically killed victims was not, was not the pain, it wasn't even the loss of blood. It was the fact that breathing became so hard because the body was so fatigued and all of your weight was just pressed upon your sternum. And so people would typically die of suffocation, loss of breath, asphyxiation. Cicero, the Roman leader, wrote early in the first centuries, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him is an abomination, to kill him is almost an act of murder, but to crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Yet here, Jesus is hung. Here, the God of glory takes his final breath. There's a female Episcopalian priest, one of the first people in America actually to be a female priest ordained in the Episcopalian church, Fleming Rutledge. She writes a 600-page book on the crucifixion, and a big question as she writes that book is she looks at this story and with like this slack-jaw Southern American accent asks, why? Like, what the heck? What is this for? Why is this part of the story? Why is this the central symbol of the Christian story? It's so barbaric, so unjust, so absurd, so scandalous, so broken, so gory. What could this mean? And she would say, this demands our meditation. Now, one of the words theologians give to describe what Jesus did on the cross is atonement, which comes from the English word attune, which is a verb, which purely just means to make one. And the Christian affirmation ever since the dawn of Jesus Christ has been this, that what Jesus did on the cross, but broadly speaking in his life, in his death, in his resurrection and his ascension, 
It was for the sake of making at one humanity separated by God from sin and God, holy and loving, longing to step back into a relationship with us. And when we walk through this kind of journey, what we're doing is theology. And that can be a really dry word. But to do theology is really just to refine the words we use to talk about God. It's kind of a lifelong practice for those who follow Jesus. You don't need to be smart. You don't need to be articulate. You just need to say, actually, the words you would use about yourself, God, I want to use them about you, God. And you've revealed those words to us in Scripture. But the task of theology is, is to uncover, not to speculate, not to create, not to innovate, not to excitedly sort of craft our ideas philosophically so we might just make up our own picture about God. It's to uncover, and to do this is kind of like archaeology. In the early centuries of the church, when Constantinople became the center of the empire under Constantine and the nation state and the empire became Christian, one of the buildings that was erected was what they call the Hagia Sophia, which means holy wisdom. And it's one of the most beautiful churches. Like, it's stunning. It's an incredible cathedral. And for thousands of years, it housed Christian worship. But then in the 15th century, the Ottomans came through and they turned what was a cathedral, a house of prayer for God through Jesus Christ, they turned it into a mosque. And in doing so, they plastered over all the old artwork, all the ancient mosaics, until in 1931, they closed up shop, they started some renovations because they wanted to open the Hagia Sophia as a museum. And when they did, they discovered that under the history under the plaster, under the rubble, through all the religion, all the ideas about God, there was this incredible mosaic. It's that incredible. <laughs> oh, this is, this is gonna take me a bit. Yeah, I got this. This is my sideshow, friends. But there was this incredible mosaic and peering through the corridors of history, looking at the viewers straight in the face, was none other than Jesus Christ. And my hope, having read some of T.S. Eliot, having talked about the task of theology, having given title to our evening around centering our imaginations on the atonement, my hope is this, that we do some archeology span this afternoon, that we do some digging, that we go back through history, find ourselves in the scriptures, and arrive at a place we think we know we've been, but to feel like we've come there for the first time. We're gonna look back through history, look into some biblical texts, and just a note about what that might mean. How good is that for a sneak preview? I might have to get someone to flick through there for me. Sorry, do you think you could do that? Thank you. And just a note about what that could look like, just to give you some like scaffolding to hang your mind on. When people come to talk about the atonement, they've got sort of two broad spectrums. And if you call New Life home, you know that all of my sermons have some kind of spectrum or table or way by which to couch our thoughts for the afternoon. And, uh, and those two models are what you might call the objective and the subjective. That in other words, what Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection and ascension did something outside of me whether Jesus and God, or Jesus and Satan, or Jesus and death, or Jesus and, or what Jesus did on the cross inspires something in me, 
And so I'll just give you that as a rubric as we walk through this little portion together. We're going to look at some models of the atonement and finish by reading Romans 8. So the first model I want us to look at is what you might call the model of penal substitutionary atonement. You came for a lecture. Here it is. This view is that the death of Jesus satisfies God's justice and God's righteousness. That what Jesus did on the cross paid a debt we owed, satisfied a justice God has, saved us from a sin that's inherent in us. Now, historically, this is tied to a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. He lived in the Middle Ages. And in his mind, what Jesus did on the cross didn't satisfy God's justice. It satisfied, satisfied God's honor, that God is a being of incredible honor. So to do the wrong thing against him is not so much about what you do, it's who you do it to. And in Jesus coming to live the life we should have lived, dying the death we deserve, he satisfied God's honor, restored back due to the king what was always owed him in the first place. But what it's come to be known as today is penal substitutionary atonement. An overview of this would be to say human sin is a transgression of God's covenant law. As such, human beings are culpable for the wrath of God and the penalty of sin, death. Because of his love, God wants to save humanity, but because of his justice, he can't accept sinners as they are. The conundrum is, what does God do? And penal substitutionary atonement would say that God in Jesus Christ provides the ultimate substitute. Penal in the sense that he bears the penalty for sin and substitute in the sense that he does so in our place. What he did there was for me. Now the objections to this are pretty staggering actually. And uh, as I walk through these objections, see these not as things I agree with. See, them as, see these as challenges that I think every Christian should really come to try and be able to respond to. Because this is in the scriptures. This is true. We can add nuance to the mechanism. We can add sort of technicolor to the, the picture. But this is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So what are the objections? Well, Richard Dawkins, 2006, he writes a book called The God Delusion. And he spends the first few chapters basically making this case that the God of the Old Testament is this sadomasochistic, brutal, barbaric, egotistical maniac. And... Uh, we're done. No, I'm kidding. And he asks this question. He says, if God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them? Without having himself tortured and executed in payment. It's the logical objection. If God is loving, why this barbaric mechanism called the cross? It's illogical. The second objection is the moral objection. And the moral objection would say, because this mechanism was necessary, what does that reveal about the character of the one who made it necessary? So there's a lady named Amy Mann, she's a Christian theologian, but she would take a different view of what happened on the cross than, say, John Calvin, who's one of the advocates of this view. She, she asks this, the cross is a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he's not even committed. The idea that God was an angry deity requiring a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath was surely more like an ancient pagan God than the father of Jesus Christ. Amy Mann. So what might we say to this? And what would the scriptures ask us to think about this? In response to the logical objection, I really feel that. Like that makes sense to me, that argument. Uh, 
Surely God could just forgive. Why does God feel like he needs to submit to this abstract notion of justice and love? But what I've come to discover as I've read the scriptures is there's nothing abstract about the God who reveals himself. And the same God who took on flesh in Jesus Christ bore our penalty on the cross is the same God who made a covenant with a particular kind of people in the Old Testament. And so when it comes to the logic of God, unless you know the whole story, you won't see a way in to make sense of it, but it's entirely coherent because we know Genesis 15, God comes to a man named Abraham, calls him out of the further parts of the East in the Middle East and says, go on this journey. I've got a great inheritance for you. I've got a great name for you. A people will come after you and you will be the means through which I bless the world. I wanna bless you, Abraham, so you would be a blessing. God's setting apart a missional people for himself for the sake of the world. We know that story. And Abraham says, well, what's gonna happen if I don't succeed? How will I know this will come true? And God institutes in that moment a sacrificial practice which was typical in the ancient Near East between suzerains and vassals, empires and subservient kingdoms. And he says, take a goat, take a heifer, take a ram, take a pigeon, cut them in two. And in this moment, here's what both parties should do. God the supreme, Abraham the subservient follower. They should both walk through. And in both walking through the split apart carcasses, what they're saying to one another is, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, I'll become like the animal that's split in two beneath my feet. But here's what happens. Abraham leaves the two carcasses, dead, set aside, fends off the vultures. He falls into a deep sleep. And then towards the back end of that story, we read this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch representing God appeared and passed between the pieces. And what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that God is saying the covenant he gave to Abraham, whose curse is death if he's disobedient, whose blessing is life and life to the full. God is saying, if you are unfaithful with this covenant, I'll be faithful. I will take the burden of responsibility. I will bear the punishment for the curse of the covenant I set up between you and myself. Utterly unique in the ancient Near East. So here's the point. When the son takes the curse of death on the cross, he's not remaining faithful to some abstract principle that sits above who God is. He's living subject to the covenant that represents the character of who he is. The logic is covenantal. God could just forgive. That's just not the covenant he established. And the way by which God comes good on the covenant is not making his people pay the price of their foolishness and rebellion, but him paying the price. What about the moral objection? I think it's easy to see the moral objection dissolve in light of three things, and we'll sort of whiz through these and we've got two more models to look at. I think the first thing we wanna see is that the, the cross was God's funeral, not some innocent third party. In other words, what sits behind what happened on the cross is not like some innocent human third party that God found and was like, you're good enough, but actually, knowing the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one being, three persons, utterly God, but Father, Son, Spirit, who was hanging on the cross? Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the second full person of the Trinity. John Stott, a wonderful writer in his book, The Cross of Christ, uh, he writes in chapter six, which is titled, The Self-Substitution of God. He writes this, he says, we must not speak of God punishing Jesus 
or of Jesus persuading God. For to do so is to set them over and against each other, as if they acted independently of each other, or were even in conflict with each other. We must never make Christ the object of God's punishment, or God the objects of Christ's persuasion. For both God and Christ were subjects, not objects, taking the initiative together to save sinners. Or, let me just use the hymn writer Charles Wesley. Think about the lyrics of his song, how amazing it can be. He says, amazing love, how can it be that thou my, not human Jesus, not innocent third party, thou my God should die for me. The Trinity, God in flesh, took on our sin. The second thing I'd say is we actually really need a wrathful God. There's so much wrong with the world right now. And what I've learned, particularly as a husband, and someone with friends I deeply care about, and someone with family whose life and plight I'm vested in, is that the opposite of love is not anger or wrath. The opposite of love is apathy. That when something bad happens to the people in our world we care most about, the strangest thing to do if you truly love them is to kick back, wink, and go, huh, yeah, shame. What's natural, what's human, what's holy and righteous is to go, that is wrong. And to have this thing well up within us. Now we talk about how to deal with it well, of course. But to have this thing well up within us where we go, that's objectively not okay. And I long for the day God comes to renew and redeem. Taking away that brokenness and sin by which you've been victimized. There's a guy named Miroslav Wolf. He's a... an Eastern European theologian. And he put it like this. He says, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Another great writer, Joshua McNall, he's a Wesleyan theologian from the States. He, he put it like this. Divine wrath is merely the outflow of God's holy love. What happens when holy love goes toe-to-toe with evil and refuses to slink backward into apathy? How good's that? We want a God who looks at evil and goes, that's so wrong that I am doing and will do something about it. We've given a foretaste in the cross of Christ. We'll be given the full picture at the end of time. We need a wrathful God. And lastly, God's thing that he takes aim at, it's not the sun, it's sin. And there's such a big difference that when God visited Jesus with wrath, it wasn't Jesus for Jesus' sake. It was his slow, steady, unflinching aim at dealing with the penalty of sin, because of which we've now got confidence he will deal with the power and the presence of sin. One Peter puts it like this, he himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, says it like this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just quote it from a wonderful hymn. That puts it like this, how deep the Father's love for us. We'll sing this later this evening, friends. It goes like this, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. 
Behold, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Penal substitutionary atonement just says that God, in Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for our sin. And nothing could be more beautiful. What about the next one, Christus Victor? Christus Victor, Latin for Christ the Conqueror, Christ the Victorious. Just the notion that through Jesus, God has triumphed over Satan, sin, and death. Now, historically, the classic way the early church unpacked this is what you call ransom theory or like the hook theory, which is just fun language, kind of unfortunate. But the idea, at least in the early church, a lot of theologians would unpack this in the early church, uh, is that Adam and Eve, they sold humanity to the devil. Now, this is interesting, right? Just go with me here. They sold humanity to the devil at the time of the fall, and therefore, God must pay the devil a ransom to free us. God, however, tricked the devil into accepting Christ's death as a ransom, for the devil was duped. The devil didn't realize that Christ could not be held in the bonds of death. It's ransom theory, hook theory, that yeah, sure, Satan will buy back humanity through the sacrifice of my son, but you don't really know what's going to happen next. And that's ransom theory. The problem with this is it's really speculative. Like if I was to ask you, when did that happen in the scriptures? You'd be like, I actually have no idea. Awesome, great answer, that's correct. And the other problem with it is it sort of, is there's a moral objection. Um, does that make God out to be quite deceptive? So what do we do with the notion that in Christ, God was victorious over sin, Satan, and death? And does that make Jesus and God seem to be a little bit deceptive or cunning or nefarious or sinister. Someone who's updated this sort of theological work with a revisit to the scriptures is a guy named Gustav Aulen in the 19th century, and then N.T. Wright, a scholar who's alive today. And they brought some really good clarity to this theory, which I think brings more light, is a helpful lens that you bring as we look to the scriptures. And what they would argue is that in Christ, the devil wasn't duped. God's not deceptive or cunning. But in Christ, God overcame the powers of sin, Satan, and death through a number of ways. I'm going to pull out two. The first one is by cancelling the accusation of debt. Now let me read from the scriptures and unpack why that's relevant, even if we looked at something similar just a moment ago. Colossians 2 puts it like this. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the, cro by the cross. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. What's he saying? Well, Paul's got this picture in his head. There's a law court. We're in a court of law. And the charge is that humanity has a legal IOU to God. Now, the Greek word for the devil is the satan or satanos, which just is another way to translate the accuser. And one of the things that really this being in God's universe has been set up to do is to accuse. We know that from the book of Job. And so what frees this individual you might call them a non-person, as the Satan. What, what frees them to do this toward humanity 
is the presence of sin in humanity's life. Satan is sort of like a prosecuting attorney in a law court, and humanity's on the stand, and they've done the wrong thing. The only reason he's brought into the room is to notify humans who are standing there with an IOU, a sin-debted IOU before God. And he's going, look what they owe. Look what they've done. Oh, Alex, look what you've done again. This is just a habit you can't kick. Alex, I knew you'd never be free of this. Such a shame to be you. How much you must loathe who you are. Prosecuting attorney. I've got a legal IOU indebted to God. Sin becomes Satan's right to shame and to condemn. Now we know this. Like, we know this to be true. Something I've discovered in my life is that guilt can be a wonderful gift from God that catalyzes change in my life and leads me to new convictions and a newfound hope and behavior. But condemnation is different. Shame is different. Guilt says, Alex, you've done the wrong thing. Here's a path forward. Walk with me. Shame and condemnation says, Alex, you are the wrong thing. Must really suck to be you. And here's what the Satan deals with. Doesn't deal with guilt. It's the Holy Spirit. Hey, here's an area of your life. But Satan, he deals with shame. He deals with condemnation. And here's Satan in the law court of humanity with a broken people sitting before him, looking at God, looking at them, going, hey, God, you know what I know about them, right? But then here's Paul. And Paul is saying, Satan loses the ground he stands on to accuse Christians because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Do you see that? Jesus, in taking our sin, nailing it to the cross, has made a public spectacle, has humiliated Satan, the accuser, walked into the courtroom and said, hey, Satan, mate, you've got it wrong. How free do you feel? That's one of the ways Christ overcomes the powers. He takes away their legal right to point the finger at the people of God. The second way is Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God. He sets in motion what we know will one day be fully Realize. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 14, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. What's Paul saying? In the ancient Greco-Roman context, to be on a triumphal procession is to be returning as a king from war, victorious in the battle you fought with the army of the people in your kingdom behind you walking like you walk with the same candor and swagger because why? Good news, you've won the war. Now when Jesus goes to war in the Gospels, what does he do? The whole point of Lent, the whole point of the Gospels is to get us to anticipate what I'm about to share next. When Jesus goes to war and when he ascends his throne, he takes not a sword but a crown of thorns. He takes not a scepter but a cross. The way Jesus wins, the way Jesus rules, the way Jesus leads, the way Jesus wars is through costly, sacrificial, servant-hearted love. So when Paul says, you are now, if you're a Christian, you're walking in triumphal procession behind your king, he's assuming we're walking in the same way. And the way of victory in the Christian life is costly, 
sacrificial, servant-hearted love. Let me just run through some quotes to make my case. Justin Martyr, second century, he said, the Lord reigns from the tree. Calvin, he said, the cross is a triumphal chariot for Jesus. A more modern theologian, Michael Horton, reform guy, he says, Jesus embraced the cross precisely as a king embraces a scepter. And the task of the Christian life, when our natural reaction would be to go, but on the cross, Jesus died. And it looked like Rome had the last laugh. The invitation of the Christian life and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit is to go, yeah, take on a different lens, be renewed with a different heart. The way of victory in this life is service. The way of war is love. Last year we did a series called Paradox where we dug deep into this as a church and we outlined the sense in which the victorious life of the Christian, it's not got bravado, it's not got macho, it's got a cross-shaped life for Christians to walk in, which means when you start asking what would Jesus do, you actually start to wage war on the powers of darkness. Did you know that? That's the beauty of the cross. That's the ascension of our king to the place from which he rules. It's kind of like, you know the story of World War II, there's D-Day and V-E-Day. And on D-Day, the Allied forces marched on the beach of Normandy and they overtook the Axis powers, the reign of social nationalism led by Hitler. But you will know, if you're sort of familiar with church history, not church history, goodness me, with history, is that they didn't announce that victory till a whole year later. April 1944, they marched the beach of Normandy and won a very successful battle. But they didn't announce the end of World War II until May 1945. Why? That was VE Day. And the answer is because even though that battle was a decisive blow that secured the outcome of the end result, there was still a skirmish to be had. And when we look at Jesus winning the war against the powers of darkness through costly, sacrificial, servant-hearted love, that's doomsday. That secures the battle. That protects the end result of what we know will be true when he comes again. So that all those who are following Jesus, who find themselves in him, broken yet beautiful, restored yet rebellious, all at the same time, know that when he comes to do away with evil again, he won't do away with us. This is the cross of Christ, which is why another hymn writer would put it like this. Christ the victorious. Hallelujah, Christ is victor. Tell with every breath that the Saviour still is conqueror over sin and death. Hallelujah, Christ is victor. Tell wherever you go that the Lord is still conqueror over every foe. Hallelujah, Christ is victor. Pain and sickness flee. When we plead the mighty victory won on Calvary, hallelujah, Christ is victor. Therefore, do and dare, go wherever Jesus sends you in prevailing prayer. One more little facet of the diamond to look at before we respond together, friends. It's what some people might call the moral influence theory. Now, this is a subjective theory. To define it, I'd say this. This is the idea that the death of Jesus saves us in virtue of its profound effect on us. That in other words, when Jesus ascended on the cross, it was such a beautiful, and it is. Paul says this in Romans 5. But just go with me here. It was such a beautiful display of God's love. God must love me this much because this is the lengths he would go to. How incredible. 
or he exemplifies his love. And this sort of frees us from the fear of him, knowing where we stand. Oh, he, he really loves us. Um, and it makes us to love him in return. Now, there's a guy, Middle Ages, Peter Abelard, who put this sword, or Hugo Grotius in the Reformation era. But there's an objection here. And the objection's quite simple. The objection is, if all that happened on the cross of Christ is that God gave us an image to inspire us, does that deal with our sin problem? Does that deal with the wrath problem? What becomes of that very particular, very real conundrum in the human story? In other words, how do I know I'm inspired enough in response to this image of God's love? Like, have I found it beautiful enough? Has it changed my life as I look at it enough? Have I reformed my behavior perfect enough that I might finally know that I've dealt with the sin problem in my life? I've actually restored myself to relate. If it's just a subjective image that inspires something in us, then it actually doesn't deal with what atonement needs to deal with, which is the sin problem, the unholy problem, the brokenness of humanity. And the last piece would really, also, the other objection would just be solidarity doesn't solve sin. Um, one of the most beautiful things I've found in my own story of grief and, and hope and struggle and pain is actually the fact that God took on flesh, has a profound ability to speak to the struggles I face in this life. It's complex enough to make sense of the complexities of my own daily living. Stunning. But solidarity doesn't solve sin. If I come to you and you've got debt and I say, I've got debt too, it makes us feel not alone, but it doesn't give us hope. And this is the issue with this particular theory. But what's beautiful about it? Well, let me read from John 15. It says this, greater love, greater love, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus says, you are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Here's what we can say. If this picture of the cross sat alone, it wouldn't bring us hope. But if this picture of the cross complements everything we've talked about, it actually makes sense of the call of the Christian life. The call of the Christian life is to realize that because Jesus took my place in his body on the tree, dealt with sin on behalf of me, because Jesus did that, positionally, legally, I'm justified by God, by grace through faith. There's nothing I can do to earn it, nothing I can do to increase it. God loves me. When he looks at me, he sees the finished work of Jesus Christ. However, all the moral commands, all the modeled living of Jesus, all the spirit-infused life of the followers of Christ, sanctification, an invitation to take on the family name and say, yes, Jesus Christ is my big brother. I'm in his family. Now by grace through faith, broken, stumbling forward, I'm going to become like the family I've already been adopted into. That's the task of the Christian life. And this is what the cross inspires, what he did for me, what he's doing in me, what he inspires through me, which is why, last little hymn I'll read for us, O sacred head now wounded. Just listen to these words. O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now has thine. Yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. 
just as I read this next stanza, why don't you just, like Easter's coming up. Just bring your mind, even if you want to close your eyes, like just picture Jesus there. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Something I've learned from the Apostle Paul, just feel free to join me just for the next few moments, is that all theology should lead to doxology. All right, good, true, beautiful words about God should lead us just to respond with our own words in thanks, adoration, and praise. And I know this because Romans 8, I told you we'd finish here. And my hope is as I read this, you would take all the mosaic, all the tiles, all the facets of the diamond, all the beauty of what God's done, all the stunning nature of what he's inspired in us, and let these words be for you a new homecoming in the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 1, bit of a long reading, says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge, how good is this, any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that and was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Undo the atonement. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen from that? How good's that? That's our story. That's Easter. That's Lent. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're caught up in. That's what we're won by, the story of Jesus. The cross did something for us instead of us. God did something to evil which we couldn't do. God is inspiring something in us which we would otherwise be without if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, which is why John Stott says it like this, there is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. None. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus Christ. Friends, I love the cross of Christ. And my hope is this afternoon, through whatever model, whatever image, whatever scripture, whatever illustration, your love has been stoked just that little bit more.
Now, the purpose of Lent, um, some people will think, oh, is this a Catholic thing? Um, I think it's just a church history thing where the church has recruited their calendar for the glory of God and the formation of his people as a moment to prompt our meditation as we anticipate this part of our year. And so Lent celebrates 40 days. Technically, if you start today and you go all the way up to Easter Friday, that is 40 business days. I don't know why the church calculated it like that, but there it is. 40 business days. And it's reminiscent of Jesus' time in the wilderness. Part of what's inspired this for us as a team for our church is, I'm sick of this season coming around every single year and missing it and not participating with Jesus in his march toward the cross. And so the encouragement as of this moment is to go in 40 days-ish, the shadow will be cast of Good Friday. The longing will be felt of Holy Saturday and the joy will be announced of Resurrection Sunday. What would it look like to anticipate that time in prayer, maybe in fasting, in saying no to worldly things that distract you for the sake of saying a bigger yes to God as you anticipate this part of the story and us walking forward together as a community, stepping into the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and sure, why not the second coming of Jesus Christ. The way we're gonna start that is just by stepping into the tradition of having our heads anointed with ashes. And so we might, we might actually do this in silence and just create a moment. And so we're gonna have James and Zoe on either sides of the thing here. And if you would like to just mark this moment as a community, just in silence, come forward and receive an anointing. And the anointing, just for what it's worth, is a mixture of olive oil and ashes. And I think they will say to you, uh, from dust you come, to dust you will return. And what a beautiful way just to step into the seriousness and the sobriety of Lent. And so would you come and receive the cross of Jesus Christ on your forehead? Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can contact us at church.nu or through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.